you, Michael. If you want to pull out your sermon insert there, uh, community news and information is on the outside. I would encourage you just to read through that and respond appropriately. On the inside, you can open it up. You see all of our text for this morning. I have the privilege of preaching Exodus chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 in a half hour. So we are going to move quick. Um, It's a passage that has done a lot on me even this morning and feeling the weight of my own sin and what it required to make me new, to make, uh, cause me to be forgiven and adopted into God's family. And so um, I'm looking forward to it. There at the top, you'll see, if I, if I boil it down to one thing I want you to get and what we're going to look at throughout this morning, it's that God saves his people from death, from slavery, and for worship. We're going to see that in Exodus 12 through 15, but we're going to see how that is true in our lives, that God saves his people graciously from death, from slavery, and for worship. Or to put it another way, as we'll see throughout the the text, is that God saves his people from himself. There's There's wrath and judgment in this text. And part of the good news is that God actually saves us from that, in one sense, from himself. And he does it by himself. Exodus 12 through 15 is filled with the Lord's mighty hand saving his people. It is a work of God, and he saves his people unto himself. So, um, let's go ahead and just uh, uh, jump in here. I've uh, picked portions of these chapters that will serve as our our scripture readings, um, and then I'll just make a few comments as we go. I won't have you stand for all of them, but how about we stand for this first one from Exodus chapter 12. I've picked verses 1 through 14, and then 29 through 32, so this will serve as our, as our scripture from the outset. So follow along as I read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Then jumping down to verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Uh, They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments." I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Verses 29 through 32. At midnight, 
the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to have your seats as we jump into this. Um, I just, uh, in the exploration of Exodus chapter 12 here, um, known as the Passover and then the 10th plague, I want to ask one question and make two observations. One question, and maybe you've been wrestling with this as I read it, or if any of you in your community groups this week explored these uh, verses, you might have had a question like this. Is this okay? God, uh, are you allowed to kill everyone in Egypt? Uh, like the firstborn, not everyone. The firstborn. Like, is this? How are we supposed to think about this and wrestle through this? Because if you're like me, you're just kind of in this track of like this is like storybook Bible sto- uh, time. Like you read it to your kids, and it's kind of scary, but you don't think much about it. Is is this okay? Well, a couple of thoughts come to mind as I've wrestled with that question. Maybe you are as well. And the first is really important, and that is uh, opportunity. There was an opportunity for all those in Egypt to be saved from the wrath of the Lord. If Pharaoh would have taken a lamb and by faith put blood on his doorposts, the Lord would have passed over his household as well. The Egyptians would have heard about Moses and all the people of Israel talking about the sacrifice and the Lord's coming and there's time to repent. There was, there was an opportunity for them to join Team Yahweh. So don't forget that. And secondly, this is a, a hard concept for us to grasp in our uh, largely Western individual world, but biblically speaking, the people are a represented people. The way the king or the leader of the people goes, the people go. The way the king goes, the the people go. That's the story of kings and chronicles. If you have a good king, the people are good. If you have a bad king, the people are often bad. The way the king goes, the people go. And this is true of Pharaoh and his people. Pharaoh's hardness had consequences for his people as he was a uh, a representative for them. His hardness affected people. And he was even warned of this. If you recall back at Exodus chapter 4, the Lord comes to him and says, Release my firstborn son, Israel, or I'm going to take your firstborn. He was warned of this judgment to come. And then lastly, uh, thinking again, wrestling with this question, is this okay? Like, how do we think about this? Don't forget that there is something spiritual and behind the scenes going on here. I will refer you back to, to last week, uh, listen to Roger's sermon if you haven't already, where he explored the previous nine plagues before this one and how they were all judgments on the various gods of Egypt. Blood, uh, the water of the Nile turned to blood and the darkness and, 
and boils and livestock and flies, gnats, all those things, they were direct attacks on the false deities of the gods of Egypt. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. For I, the Lord, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So that's my my question. Is this okay? Well, there's a few thoughts to, to help us wrestle through this. But a couple of observations, two observations from Exodus 12. And the first one I've already hinted at. But both nations are impacted. Unlike the previous nine plagues that Roger preached last week, you recall like everybody gets boils, except in Goshen where the people of Israel were. They were spared. Darkness over the whole land, well, except where the Israelites were. Frogs coming up out of the Nile and just everywhere throughout the land, except where the people of Israel were. But not so with this one. Both nations in Egypt had this judgment and this wrath impending above their head, and they had to, by faith, take a lamb, slaughter it, and take its blood and put it on a store if they wanted to be spared. And commentators wrestle with, with why this is, but most um, basic, I think, is that it's showing us Israel is not inherently better than the Egyptians. What makes them better than the Egyptians is that God chose them, and by faith, they are following the Lord, however imperfectly. But they're not better in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, if we're just doing a side-by-side comparison, the Israelites, as you know, are not that great. They've, when Moses came and said, hey, I'm the prophet of, of Yahweh, I am sent me, I'm going to save you, they rejected him. They rejected the word of the prophet, just like the Egyptians did. Later in Joshua, we're going to see um, that the Israelites, when they leave through the Exodus, they bring some of the, the gods of Egypt with them. It's like, what? The one true God is delivering you through a pillar of fire and cloud, and you've heard his voice, and he's parted a Red Sea, but you brought some trinkets, and you're worshiping the gods of Egypt? They're not any better than the Egyptians in a lot of ways. Whereas one commentator, Alec Motier, says uh, in his commentary on Exodus, when the wrath of God is applied in its essential reality, no one is safe. There were two nations in the land of Egypt, but they were both resistant to the word of God. And if God comes in judgment, no one, none will escape. No one will escape. But that's not the end of the story. The Passover is a story about God providing a way of safety, a way of escape. And what God demands, he provides. Which leads me to my second observation here. Just a, a brief, this is not a, a main point of the, of the text by any means, but it's just a, a side point. And that is that God is concerned with households. God cares, yes, about individuals, but he's thinking more along the lines of households. Look back at verse 3 with me. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And it goes on to say household over and over and over again in those next verses right after that. God is cared about individuals, your personal faith, yes, but God is one who thinks in terms of households. The biblical household would have included mom and dad and the kids, but also extended family. There were servants or sojourners in the land. That was counted as the household, and sometimes your parents above you, the generation would be with you. It was a full, full house, and God is concerned with the redemption of households. 
obviously I'm setting us up for, for later the story in the story. This becomes very important, but also why we are in a tradition that baptizes both professing believers and children because God cares about the children and households of believing parents. And I, and I know that's hard for us to, to, to get in a post-enlightenment a radically individual world where we think all that matters is my heart and my personal faith, the Lord over and over again deals with his people in households. And the households have a representative or a head of household as it's called. And you see it positively if the fathers took the lamb and put the blood on the door, that household was spared. But also the, the inverse is true. The failure of the head of the household to take the lamb's blood and put it on the door had consequences for the whole house. Somebody in it died. We see that in verse 30. The heads of households acted as representatives, I don't know why I'm struggling with that word, through whom the consequences of either their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness had repercussions for everyone in the household. So our story is teaching us that here the the blood of this lamb was the means by which God would spare his people from punishment for sin. He would pass over their households. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, Jesus. You probably know where I was going with this. This passage is on its tippy toes, leaning forward, waiting for us to, to see its fulfillment in Jesus. This passage points to Jesus in a number of ways. I just want to point out a couple. The first is in the, the animal itself, the lamb. It's not a random animal. It's, you may recall, uh, Christmas was not that long ago, John chapter 1, when John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for Jesus, in John chapter 1, sees the Lord. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb who would accomplish our salvation, who would protect his people. Jesus is the one that allows the triune God to pass over us and our sins. But secondly, not just in the lamb. I I, I forgot to put this in there. Verse 5, that's one of the verses I took out of your your, uh, insert, but just listen to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. It's not just a lamb. It's a lamb without blemish blemish. And yet again, this points us ahead to Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb who was sinless. He was righteous without blemish. And because of that, because he was without defect, he alone could satisfy the wrath of God and make payment for sin. But the the, the biggest and, and most clear Jesus picture in this chapter is the blood. The blood. Exodus 12 is bloody. And our story, brothers and sisters, is bloody. Sounds weird to say out loud, I know. Be remiss if I didn't preach on Exodus 12 and not mention The Prince of Egypt, the animated film by Steven Spielberg. I'm not picking on it. I actually enjoy the movie, but I'm going to pick on Steven Spielberg. Because the original script of the movie had God passing over the households when he saw the, quote, mark on the door. He intentionally was taking blood out of the story. That's disgusting. It's so primitive and barbaric. The Lord will just see the mark and pass over the houses. But, I don't know who they were, but his religious consultants said, "Uh uh-uh. You miss the whole story if you take out the blood. And that's why it's in the movie. 
Jesus shed his blood for us, for you. And listen to the way, I'm super challenged by this. Um, Listen to the way the New Testament authors speak about the blood, not of this lamb, but of the lamb, Jesus. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, says, hey, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. That's 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. I don't know how often I've thought about Jesus' blood. It's precious. Don't get weird on me. Don't start going all Gollum. But precious. It's beautiful. The Puritans, no matter how you feel about them, they often spoke about the blood of Christ, how they love it. I love the blood. There's more verses I could point us to uh, with connection to the blood, but I'll just end with Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This story is about Jesus. We'll conclude, actually, with a few thoughts on, on the Passover, but... Jesus, like God in the original story here in Exodus, saves his people from death, from the very wrath of God. And that is why Jesus can say this. He saves his people from death. And so it's no surprise that he says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Doesn't end there. Jesus then says this, do you believe this? I don't know if you've been wrestling with your mortality lately, but that is the hope. Though we die, we don't die. We live. Jesus saves his people from death. So my application point is pretty easy here, although it's going to sound a little strange. It's to be a bloody people. Be a bloody people. Don't be Steven Spielberg, scared of it. It's beautiful. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin, makes us righteous. Believe in the blood. Be about the blood. Sing about the blood. Pray and give thanks to Jesus for his blood. It's a good thing. Second big point is moving over to Exodus 14. This is the the story of the Exodus proper, and this is where we are going to see that God not only saves his people from death, but here in Exodus 14, we're going to see that God saves his people from slavery. We're going to see how that has implications for us. Um, Exodus 14, I uh, picked verses 10 and following. So follow along with me. I'm just going to read this real quick. Exodus 14. The story goes up. The Passover happened. Pharaoh says, get out, go. Um, And so the people, now 600,000 strong, not counting, that was just the men, not counting women and children, uh, leave hastily, and as they go, they're, they're grabbing stuff. They grab silver and gold. It says they plunder some of the Egyptians on their way out. So they're put up in a, a good position. But Pharaoh changes his mind as the story goes, you know. He says, what have we done? We just, got, we just let all of our, our servants go. Let's go get them. So he puts an army together and chases them down, and that's where we are here. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. 
They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And you know how the story goes. They get safely across. The Egyptians go in after them, and the Lord closes the water and kills them all. So, two brief observations here of Exodus 14. I hope these don't surprise you. But this is true, and this is about Jesus. This is true, and this is about Jesus. What I mean by that, this is true, is that this actually happened in space and time and is a miracle. It's true. Now, there are certainly uh, debates abounding as to where they crossed. Is it a, a proper translation to, to call this the Red Sea, or is it more proper to be the Sea of Reeds? Or one uh, commentator put forward the, the translation, the Sea of the End, meaning the end of, uh, of, of Egypt's territory, again, being the Red Sea. But what, what do we call this? It's a debate around the Hebrew phrase, Yom Suf. Where did they cross? How did this happen? The, the Lord seems to be doing it, but the angel of the Lord is here, and then there's an east wind... There's certainly discussions to be had, but this is true. This is a miracle. And the world around us is going to say that this didn't happen. And even in the church over the last couple hundred years, because of certain uh, a criticism of the scriptures, in an attempt to take all the miraculous out of the Bible, there are even people who in the church denied this. John Currid is a, a doctor, PhD, really smart guy on the first five books of the Bible. He's actually teaching an Indianapolis Theological Seminary class. Um, a couple of you were in that class. Uh, he wrote a commentary on Exodus and tells a, a funny story uh, about someone thinking along those lines. This was very popular in the, the 20th century, um, being critical of the text, being uh, thinking uh, miracles don't happen, so you have to explain away all these plagues, the parting of the Red Sea with naturalistic things. And so he tells the story of a liberal minister. And by liberal, again, he just means a man who didn't believe in miracles, which is hard when you read the Bible. But anyways, they exist. 
this liberal minister was preaching in an old Bible-believing African-American church. And at a certain point in the sermon, the minister refers to the crossing of the Red Sea. Praise the Lord, someone shouted. Taking all the children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. But the minister didn't believe in miracles, and so he says condescendingly, no, 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 it wasn't a miracle. There's only a few inches of water. They were likely in a marshland, and the, the tide was ebbing. They picked their way across in six inches of water. Praise the Lord, the man shouted again. Drowning all the Egyptians in six inches of water. <laughs> what a mighty miracle. I don't often crack up reading commentaries, but that happened this week, so I just wanted to share it. The hand of God is all over this story. He delivers his people by himself, by his power. It's a miracle. So this is true, but this also points forward to Jesus. The Exodus story becomes a biblical motif for the people of God in all ages, that is, that, that God, through Jesus Christ, delivers his people from slavery to sin, not just slavery in Egypt. The story is about Jesus in a number of ways, but I'll just point out a couple of them. The gospel writers go to great lengths to make connections, historical connections between Jesus and this event. Listen to some of these. Jesus is born under oppression. Babies are slaughtered. The people are enslaved to sin but also under the rule of the Romans. Jesus and his family enter Egypt to get away from Herod, just to emerge from Egypt and Exodus through water, the baptism of Jesus, and he enters into the desert wilderness for 40 days, as opposed to their 40 years. Jesus is painted over and over again by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the greater Israel, the true Israel who passes the test, who goes into the wilderness and doesn't grumble like they do, but beats the enemy and brings us out from slavery to sin. And then in verses 21 and 2, 21 and 22, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea and creation obeys. Reminds me of a, of a story of, a, of another man, Jesus Christ, who was in a boat with the disciples asleep as a, a storm raged and they go to wake him up because they're afraid and Jesus stretches his hand and says, peace, be still. And the water cease. Jesus is not only the greater Israel, he's also the greater Moses. Jesus delivers his people from slavery, from bondage. He sets us free. I would encourage you guys uh, this afternoon or, or something uh, even to consider it Romans chapter 6. Verses 16 through 19 detail um, for us Jesus' deliverance of us from sin. Such that Paul also in Galatians 4 can say, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter, through Jesus, and are now an heir through God. And so, just like God saves his people from death, Jesus saves his people from death, here we're seeing in the Exodus story, Jesus saving his people from sin. Just like I encouraged us to be a bloody people, I would also apply this to your soul by encouraging you to be a free people. We're not slaves anymore. The world around us and even your story before meeting Jesus was that you were a slave to sin, unable to change your posture, unable to obey God. 
Unable to believe until your heart was opened, until you saw Jesus as beautiful. Now that you are free, be free. But if you're like me, when I just said free, you think that means doing whatever you please. Choosing your own path. The biblical freedom is that you're now free and able to obey. We're now free to please God and do what he says. So be a free people. Free from your, yourself, free from your sin, and now you're able to obey God, glorify him, and enjoy him. So let's go be not only a bloody people, but a free people. My third and final point, and, and, and very brief here, is Exodus 15. Instead of reading the whole chapter, I just want to look at verses, the first couple verses, which give us a good feel. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So a brief comment and thought here is that throughout the biblical story, as we see like high points in the story. This would be one of them, crossing the Red Sea and deliverance from Egypt. When we see these, the, the story moving along and having these, these spikes, we always see the people of God responding in song. Responding in song. Now, the theme of this song is, is the Lord protecting his people. He's called a man of war. He's called strong. He's a warrior who fights for his people. Over and over again throughout the story, we're reminded that God conquered the Egyptians. It says they were thrown into the sea. The waters covered them. They went down to the deep. But I'm challenged through this, and, and it's actually a huge theme in the Psalms, that the Lord fights for his people. It's a little strange for us, again, because we don't have an enemy right next to us trying to kill us often, if at all, in your life. So it's hard to think about the, the Lord as a fighter, a warrior for you. But that was good news to the people of God. And I think it should be good news to us. Did you catch it back in, in, in 14, 14, verse 14? The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You don't have to strive. You don't have to do the fighting. You don't have to, to be the warrior, the strong one. The Lord is for you. Your job? Be quiet. Trust the Lord. Let him do the fighting. Let him be a warrior for you. So, let's be a bloody people, a free people, and let's be a singing people. And that's coming from someone who's not a very good singer. We are, it, it is right for us to sing praises to the Lord. It is right for us to respond to his salvation through song. It's one of the reasons we go to the communion table each week to remind us of that which we are to sing about, what the Lord has done for us. We've been studying in Exodus here, the first Passover, but we should do so in light of the last Passover, the ultimate Passover, the passion of Jesus. The day that we call the triumphal entry where Jesus on Palm Sunday rode his donkey and people were 
you know, doing the, the palm branches stuff. We call that the triumphal entry. That very day that Jesus is riding in on a donkey is the same day lambs from all over the countryside are being brought in to the city. Jesus uh, celebrated the, the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, and, and breaks the bread and says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's saying that the Passover was always about me. It wasn't about Egypt or lambs and, and blood on doors. It was about me. When Jesus is crucified on the eve of Passover at twilight, the lambs would be sacrificed in all the households. As Jesus is hanging on the tree, all the households throughout Jerusalem would have the fathers gathering the kids around and say, look at this, this lamb. God's provided blood for us, not knowing that the lamb of God was on a tree outside the city. The very moment the, the priest is over at the temple sacrificing a lamb to be atonement for the people. But Jesus, the lamb... Is bleeding out on the cross. For me. For you. He was the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world while the people had no idea what they were doing, preparing a lamb when the lamb was there. That's why um, we go to the, the communion table each week is to help us feel our sin. That's the feeling I'm feeling right now. Because my mistakes and my rebellion and my sin could only be reversed by God dying. But it's also good news because Jesus did it because of the joy that was set before him. And you were the joy. I was the joy. Read the Exodus story, Genesis 12. Read the Passover story, but do so in light of the ultimate Passover, Jesus, whose blood was shed to secure your freedom and make you a son, no longer a slave. That's why we go to the communion table each week. Um, it is a way for us to remember the first Passover, but more importantly, the ultimate Passover of Jesus. And it is a way for us to publicly declare, I'm resting in Jesus alone for salvation. I'm, I'm trusting in his blood, not the, the blood of an animal, but the blood of Jesus. It's a way for us to receive him again and to rest on him alone for salvation. And so if you are a Christian, this table's for you, and I invite you to it. To spiritually remember 
Jesus and his blood shed for you, the freedom that he purchased for you, and then to sing. Because that's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. The fulfillment of the Passover. This is my body, this is my blood. You know what they did? They sang a hymn. And so I'm going to pray for us as I do. Um, if I could have some servants, at, uh, servers, servants, that's weird. Some servants, please. Some servers at each table. Uh, here at New City, we'll come from the outside, grab your bread first and red wine or white grape juice, and then return to your seats, and I'll partake. We'll, we'll partake together. So let me pray for us. Lord, that passage and thinking about the connections between the first Passover and your Passover, Jesus, has affected me each day this week. As it it again today. Thank you. I, who was once your enemy, now have a seat at the table. I pray for my brothers and sisters now that as we go to the communion table, that it wouldn't be rote, that it wouldn't just be uh, performance, but that we would be trusting in you. Jesus, spiritually meet with us now as we, by faith, Hold on to your blood and your body. And so be with us, and I pray this in Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name. Amen.